This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. everyone and welcome to episode 168 of the criminology podcast i'm mike ferguson and this is mike morford mr mike morford what's going on with you brother not too much i'm dodging some hardcore rain some thunderstorms and uh we're luckily they just passed and we're gonna get to recording this episode yeah i i was looking at the weather last night and there was something called a derrico which i to be honest with you i've never heard of it's similar to a tornado like 240 miles long straight gusty winds and uh it can really wreak some serious havoc so hopefully everyone is safe and there wasn't too much damage as a result of these storms but they sounded like they could be very very bad yeah it seems like there's been a lot of crazy weather and down in southwest florida here we get a lot of thunderstorms almost every day but they're usually in the afternoon but i've been getting some hardcore ones in the morning as well so well when you live in uh in the the tropics man you got to put up with some weather that's just how it goes all right more before we jump into our episode let's do our patreon shout outs we had becky tate kim lowry lisette amelia gordon annette quisenberry jumped out above our highest level Stephanie Ferruli, Cassie Sampson, Carol, Sarah McKinney, and Regina McKinney. So not sure if there's a a relationship there. Hopefully there is because that makes it exciting. It's really cool. We have some great supporters and we can't thank you enough. And if anyone out there would like to help support criminology, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash criminology. All right, more if it's time to jump into this episode. And today we're going international traveling to Finland for a really bizarre and creepy case, the Lake Bodum murders. Now, please bear with us in this episode. We're going to try and get as close as we can with some of the pronunciations of people's names and places. Some of them will probably be tough. Bodum Lake is near the town of Espoo, Finland, just 30 minutes west of Helsinki. The lake is almost two miles long and just over half a mile wide. In 1960, Espoo, which is the second most populated city in Finland, had a population of around 53,000, compared to Helsinki, Finland's most populated city, which had about 450,000 residents that same year. So, yeah, I think you can really see the contrast in sizes and populations in cities in Finland in 1960. During the winter months, Lake Bodum can be very icy, and the temps there are pretty cold. But in the summer, it's a sleepy place where you can go to relax, camp, fish, or birdwatch. Unfortunately, the peace and beauty of Lake Bodum and its natural scenery are usually not the focal point when the area is talked about. That all gets overshadowed, because in 1960, a triple homicide earned it headlines that are forever associated with the area. These are now known as the Lake Bodum murders, and to this day, many people continue to be wary when they head out to the lake area. On Sunday, June 5th, 1960, right around 6 a.m., a group of young boys out birdwatching saw a blonde man walk away from a campsite toward the lake. They were drawn to the campsite because they saw motorcycles parked near some trees, and they ended up seeing much more than they bargained for. The tent that they saw him walking away from wasn't strung up between the trees. It had collapsed. Unfortunately, 
Due to translation errors and the lack of media attention in the United States, there are some conflicting reports. And we can't read the original sources without relying on some of the same tools that possibly created the conflicts. Some reports say that the children saw a man laying on top of the collapsed tent, while others state that the boy saw a leg sticking out from under the collapsed tent. Whatever the case, one thing is clear. These boys felt that something wasn't right with the scene. And later on, the account from these boys would play a huge factor in the case. At around 11 a.m., a man named Esko Johansson happened upon the same campsite and took a closer look. It was then that he discovered multiple murder victims lying on top of each other, on top of and inside the collapsed tent. Esko quickly alerted police, who made it to the scene about an hour later at noon. Just after Esko Johansson left the scene to summon police, another man, Risto Siren, also came upon the crime scene, and he went to alert authorities as well. In photographs of the crime scene, it's important to note that there's someone laying on top of the tent and a leg sticking out from underneath the tent. Police were shocked when they arrived at what appeared to be the bodies of four lifeless people, two young men and two young women. As they looked closer, they were surprised to find signs of life in one of the men who they had assumed was dead from the way that the scene looked. It was a very bloody crime scene and it appeared that the victims had all been stabbed and bludgeoned. 18-year-old Nils Gustafsson was injured, but a lot. Unfortunately, his girlfriend, 15-year-old Mela Ermeli Borkland, known as Maley to friends and family, as well as Maley's friend, Anya Tuliki Maki, who also was 15 years old, and her 18-year-old boyfriend, Seppo Entero, boysmen, were dead. Tuliki, who was known by her middle name, since Anya is such a common name in Finland, and Seppo were still completely inside the tent. Meili was on top of the tent like Nils, but Meili was naked from the waist down. It's unknown whether Meili was pulled out of the tent or if she had managed to partially escape from the tent. The attack was unique and brutal. There were two large holes cut into the tent one of which Nils was laying on top of. One of these holes is how the boys that first saw the campsite that morning were able to see the leg of someone inside the collapsed tent. Whoever had attacked the teens had actually killed Taliki and Seppo while they were still inside the tent, bludgeoning them with something from outside of the tent, possibly a pipe or a rock. Seppo had also been stabbed from the outside of the tent. The tent had become a trap when the attacker cut the support for it, collapsing the heavy material on them in the dark, or very early morning light. The young campers likely were attacked while they were still asleep. Both Nils and Seppo's shoes were missing from the campsite. Seppo's leather jacket was also gone, but Tuliki and Maley's clothes were still hanging where the girls had left them the previous evening. The keys to both of the motorcycles were missing. Both pairs had been left in the ignition of the bike that they belonged to, All four of the victims' wallets were missing from the campsite, as were their watches. Seppo had brought along a knife, which was also missing. Because Nils had a concussion, he couldn't remember much of the night at all. He just remembered going to sleep that evening. He also had a broken jaw and a large cut on his face. Under hypnosis, he recalled a blonde man outside the tent attacking them with a metal pipe and cutting holes in the tent. He recalled red eyes and dark clothes. Investigators learned from him that the four teens had left for Lake Bodum on June 4th in the evening with each couple, Seppo and Taliki, and Nils and Maley on motorbikes. They arrived at the lake and spent some time enjoying the scenery. Everything seemed normal, and there was really nothing out of the ordinary. They set up a large single tent that they all planned to share sometime around 6 or 7 p.m. in a spot popular with campers and settled in for the night before they were attacked early on June 5th. Police later interviewed the young boys who had seen a blonde man walking away from the campsite and had one of them put under hypnosis, but he was nearsighted and couldn't give any further details about what the man had looked like. 
Investigators found Maylie's diary, and it appeared she was quite thorough in keeping it. According to the diary, the group went to bed around midnight, but around 2 a.m., the morning of the murders, Maylie wrote that Seppo and Nils were still up and that they were drunk. Don would have arrived at around 2.30 a.m. that morning. Now, that may sound odd to American listeners especially, but Finland's summer nights are different from most of ours here in the United States, unless you live in Alaska. Los Angeles has roughly nine hours of darkness between dusk and dawn. Espoo, Finland, in the summer has less than four. Which, to me, more, I think it would be great for getting things done, things that you need light to do. I do think it would make it tougher to get a good night's sleep. I've always thought that. I thought the same thing about Alaska. You know, and sometimes you see in movies where, you know, people are having to put really heavy curtains, like light blocking curtains, because if not, it just seems like it's daytime all the time. Yeah, I remember there was an Al Pacino movie. I can't think of the name of it, but he went to Alaska to work on a case. He was a cop and he asked the, the local sheriff, where, where are the kids at? It's it's 12 o'clock. And the guy's like, yeah, it's 12 o'clock midnight. <laughs> so there was no school going on, but Al Pacino thought it was the middle of the day. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I just watched that movie the other day. And I remember thinking, okay, Robin Williams as the bad guy. In, an interesting choice. But Robin Williams was so talented that he could play slapstick comedy, but he actually was a really good dramatic actor. I miss that guy. Yeah, he was a really good actor, and the, and the movie's good if anyone hasn't seen it. Yeah, the movie's called Insomnia. According to the diary, Seppo and Nils went fishing for a while before they returned to the tent, and the group went back to sleep, presumably at this point in an intact tent. The sun rose around 4.30 a.m., and the attack is estimated to have happened between 4 and 6 a.m. When the boy saw a blonde man walking away from the campsite, tent already collapsed and victims already laying there. A man named Alavi Kivalati, who had been fishing west of the teen's campsite, later came forward and reported that he also saw a blonde man walking and gave a description of a man who was about five foot eight between 20 and 30 years old, wearing dark pants and a light shirt or jacket. Complicating things. Investigators also found a pillowcase with blood and semen on it. It was near the tent and it wasn't just a pillowcase lying on the ground. It was rolled up and tied on both ends with rubber bands. It resembled a newspaper, like a paper boy would throw. Investigators would later decide it wasn't related to the crime itself. And since there was no DNA at the time in 1960, all that could be learned was the blood type of the donor, but nothing that could lead to the identity of the donor. When police were finished surveying the clues, they didn't lock down or secure the crime scene, an unfortunate mistake. Authorities also let people join in the search for the weapons and the teen's missing personal items. But because the area was trampled on by all sorts of people trying to help, this made the chance of discovering any useful footprints almost zero. And more, if I think we've seen this same type of mistake play out in a lot of high profile cases over the years, this was a problem in one of the most infamous murder cases in the U S as well. When John Benet Ramsey was reported kidnapped, her parents called over two adult couples, friends and neighbors of theirs for comfort and help. The two adult Ramseys and their four friends, along with numerous police officers and multiple victims advocates contaminated what turned out to be the crime scene. By the time police realized that John Bonet had been murdered in her home, dozens of people had already passed through and touched things. The victims advocates had even straightened up a little bit, just trying to help. Many believe that John Bonet Ramsey's murder would be solved today if the crime scene had been initially secured and we could rattle off a number of other crime scenes that weren't properly secured or analyzed more. If you and I could talk about cases involving that scenario all day long, early on in some of these investigations, it seems as though investigators were desperate to have any help that they could get. But in the long run, 
This help turned out to hurt the cases they were investigating. The residents of the Espoo area were shocked by the news of the attack on the campers, and they hoped that the killer would soon be brought to justice. But that didn't happen, and the case went cold. In 2004, police were able to reanalyze evidence from the scene with all the new technological advances that have come along since 1960. In March 2004, Nils Gustafsson, who was now 63 years old and had never before been a suspect, was arrested and charged with the murders of Maley Borkland, Seppo Boisman, Tuliki Maki. He was put on trial, which started in August 2005. At this point, Nils was married with two adult children. He had a long career as a bus driver and had since retired. It had been almost 44 years since the murders. Prosecutors put forth the theory that Seppo and Nils were both up late and drunk, as Maley had written in her diary, and they ended up fighting each other. This accounted for the injuries that Nils suffered, which he, according to the prosecution, had only pretended were from an unknown third party. It was also argued that Nils had tried to initiate sexual contact with Maley, who turned him down. He and Maley had been dating for about a month before the murders. So, you know, this helped explain the theory why she was nude from the waist down and also why the attacker seemed to concentrate their assault on her. Maley had been stabbed multiple times after she was already dead, which seemed to indicate a crime of passion. Put together, these theories painted the prosecution's vision of the attack. Nils had grown angry after Maley rejected his advances, and after being kicked out of the tent, he started cutting holes in the tent, then actually cut the tent down, trapping the three teens inside. Nils then started attacking Seppo from outside of the tent, and Seppo kicked, making contact with his face, breaking Nils' jaw. Nils then stabbed Seppo in the throat and continued to bludgeon him as Tuliki tried to escape out of the end of the tent. Nils then bludgeoned Tuliki's head with a rock to stop her from escaping and did the same to Maley's face before stabbing her in the throat and neck area. According to prosecutors, Nils focused his rage on Seppo and Maley, who, according to them, were the ones who truly made him angry. He then staged the scene removing Maley's clothing, covering Tuliki's head with a blanket or a scarf, and then moving Maley's body on top of Tuliki's body and then on top of the tent. There were traces of Nils' blood inside the tent, but prosecutors argued that it was from him touching the inside of the tent after a violent struggle, not from being attacked while inside of it. Since Nils was the sole survivor and he was blonde, like the young boy saw walking from the campsite, the prosecution laid out the question, had the young boy seen Nils on his way to hide the murder weapon and his shoes? No murder weapon was ever recovered, but Nils and Seppo's shoes were found almost a half a mile away from the crime scene, sort of concealed in a wooded area, but not well hidden. Decades later, DNA testing of the shoes found the blood of Maley, Seppo, and Taliki on Nils' shoes, but none of the blood matched Nils. Authorities suspected that Nils attacked Maley, Seppo, and Taliki, and then walked 0.6 miles to hide the shoes, and then inflicted the injuries on himself, which is why only their blood was found on his shoes. At the trial, a woman testified that she was camping nearby at Bodum Lake on the night of the murders, and that Nils and Seppo had come to her campsite during the night drunk and aggressive, especially toward each other. Before this, she had never said anything until she spoke to a documentary crew in 2004. Maley's diary does mention Nils and Seppo leaving the tent, but it says that they went fishing and returned. She didn't write about them going to anyone else's tent. So, you know, either she was unaware or it wasn't Nils and Seppo that visited this woman's campsite that night. If they did just fish and return to the tent without incident, this leads to the possibility that there was another pair of drunk blonde men wandering around Bodum Lake that night, possibly causing trouble. While the trial made headlines 
and was an ordeal for Nils to go through. At the end of it, Nils Gustafson was acquitted of all three murders on October 7th, 2005. So, you know, more obviously an ordeal. I mean, I think that's probably an understatement. When you're on trial for the murders of three of your friends, that is not going to be an easy situation. Nobody wants to have to go through that. But after he was acquitted, then you still have the question, okay, if Nils didn't do it, who did? That question has been asked countless times over the years, and it's led to a lot of theories, speculation, and potential suspects. Hey folks, we want to introduce you to the game June's Journey. If you haven't played this, you don't know what you're missing. It's so much fun. For you amateur sleuths, it really brings out the inner detective because it's all about finding clues and solving mysteries. You get to play as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You have to use your observation skills, solve mind-teasing mysteries. I love the graphics on this game. I love the hidden object aspect of it. It's full of mystery, danger, and even romance. You can even customize your very own luxurious estate island. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So, you know, escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker while you travel back to the glamorous 1920s. I've been playing this game for a couple of years now, and it's a great escape from everything that goes into putting out the podcast. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. Whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered must be 21 and over to order alcohol drink responsibly alcohol available only in select markets locals like Ulf Johansson who wrote the book Legend of Bodom about the murders claim the deaths were never a mystery at all around the campsite there was actually a local man said to hate campers for some unknown reason Carl Valdemar Gilstrom operated a kiosk near the campsite like a small snack bar stand where campers could get food or various supplies they needed. He was known for being aggressive toward the campers he encountered. People often call him Kiosk Man in online discussions about the case. Carl had a well on his property that actually filled in just weeks after the murders. Many people believe that the murder weapon or some of the belongings from the victims are buried down in that well. In 1969, Carl drowned in Lake Bodum. The rumor is that shortly before he died, he asked someone what they would do if they had committed the Lake Bodum murders, and their reply was something like, I'd drown myself so I didn't die in prison. So, you know, this has led many to speculate that Carl drowned himself out of guilt over the murders. Friends who had gotten drunk with Carl had reportedly overheard him confess to the Lake Bodum murders. However, for years, Carl had an alibi. His wife vouched for him, swearing they were both at home in bed all night and that she knew he didn't leave because she had been awake all night. Soon before her death, though, Carl's wife said that the alibi was false. Carl had forced her to lie and say that he was home all night. People point out that during World War II, Carl had suffered some kind of head injury which may explain his erratic and aggressive behavior. 
We've mentioned before in cases that head injuries can sometimes lead to violent behavior. Carl was apparently known to act weird and say things that didn't make sense or that weren't true. He's still a strong suspect because he was apparently known to throw rocks at people around the lake and had even cut down people's tents before. Ulf Johansson claimed that Carl would cut the tents down and laugh as they collapsed. So, you know, let's take a minute more to talk about Carl a little bit. You know, obviously in these types of cases, you're going to have a number of suspects. You're going to have a lot of online discussions about all of these different suspects. You know, Carl is very interesting. You know, this was a man who spent a lot of time around the lake. I mean, obviously he had this little kiosk and it was well known that he was cantankerous at best. I'll use that word, you know, throwing rocks at people, taking pleasure out of cutting campers tents down and, you know, kind of laughing as they collapse down on people. Okay. That's not what we would consider normal, especially if you operate kind of a service little place, you know, you want people to visit. You don't want people to be deathly afraid of you because you're terrorizing the area around the lake. And then, you know, you, you jump into this talk about head injuries. As you mentioned, we've talked about it in quite a number of cases, you know, especially if his injury, and I don't know if it was involved the frontal lobe, you know, there's no doubt it's well-documented. The frontal lobe governs impulse control, uh, you know, kind of personality, all kinds of different ways around how we act. So damage to that frontal lobe can definitely cause some strange behavior in certain individuals. When I was reading about Carl, I was thinking what came to my mind was like in the movie Friday the 13th, the crazy guy that lived around the lake that everyone was creeped out by. He was like a local person that people thought of as the local creep. And that's what Carl seems like. But it's kind of odd. And I think you touched on it. If he's someone that's making a living from selling products to these people in the area, it's almost doesn't make sense that he would also terrorize them because that wouldn't be good for business. So I wonder how much of that is accurate. And if it is accurate, then his business probably suffered as a result of terrorizing local people that were going to the lake. Right. But isn't that what is so interesting about some of these older cases that have been talked about at length, especially now, you know, since we've had the, the kind of the online age, you get so much information and the tough part is really trying to weed through all this information to discover, okay, what is fact? What is lore? What is fiction? You know, we want to talk about it all because, you know, it's, it could potentially all be important, but, you know, determining the validity of some of this information, it it can be very tough. Carl Valdemar Gilstrom, though, is not the only potential suspect in this case. A German man named Hans Assmann lived in the town of Bodum and people over the years have found him very suspicious because on June 6, 1960, Hans visited the hospital in Helsinki, Finland. Now, it's still unknown why he visited the hospital, but doctors recall his behavior as being extremely odd. His clothes were covered in stains from something red and wet, like blood. His hands and fingernails were dirty, almost as if he had been digging in the ground with his bare hands. After Nils and the young boy had been hypnotized, and their description of a blonde man was released to the media. Hans shaved his blonde hair off. At the same time, while his movements seemed suspicious, he also had an alibi for the time of the murders. He had apparently been with his mistress all night in a house with other people around. So, you know, sneaking off to commit this attack may have been pretty hard to do. Some accounts report that Hans acted unconscious at the hospital, while others state that he was acting agitated or nervous. These each paint a different picture of possible guilty behavior. It's also often reported that Hans visited the hospital during the morning, that he used a fake name, and that he disappeared before being treated. 
Professor Jormo Paolo, who had been a doctor during Hans's visit, remembered him, and even wrote books in which he discussed Hans's guilt and odd behavior. Some of the reports of Hans's behavior and trip to the hospital vary, possibly due to English translation issues. It appears that, you know, one of the most likely scenarios of what actually happened is that Hans had been drinking heavily with an already unspecified stomach illness, and he was subsequently found unconscious by his wife, who didn't know how drunk he had gotten and thought he was gravely ill. So she had him rushed to the hospital by ambulance. The ambulance ticket issued by the Helsinki Fire Department shows that Hans was admitted to the hospital at 10.45 p.m. Hardly someone who just wandered into the hospital after a night in the woods. This ticket also clearly has the name Hans Asman on it. He did not use a fake name. He may have very well disappeared before being treated if he and his wife had a discussion and went home deciding that he could just sleep it off. The people who swore that Hans was at their house the night of the murders with his mistress recall that Hans was covered in something red and wet, but it appeared to have been paint. Reportedly, he had painted at a nearby house, but was done and at the place of his alibi by 6 p.m., possibly covered in paint. It's possible that people took an already suspicious man and embellished events around him, but as it turns out, the Lake Bodum murders are not the only homicides that Hans is suspected of or possibly involved with. Hans is also linked to the 1953 death of Ali Kaliki Seri, a 17-year-old girl who had been missing and was found murdered in Finland. Her murder is still unsolved. When her body was found in a bog just 700 feet from a road, she was nude from the waist down, just like Maley. Her jacket was wrapped around her head, just like Taliki's head was covered by a scarf or blanket. Hans supposedly confessed that he and a friend had struck a girl with their car while she was riding her bicycle home. Many believe that he was talking about Ali Sari, although Hans himself never specified the girl's name. This does not match the actual circumstances of how Ali's body was found or the injuries she suffered. She was missing for five months before her body was finally found. So, Unfortunately, advanced decomposition had already started and it made it difficult for authorities to figure out exactly what had happened to her. However, she did have blunt force trauma to her head and face and had a broken nose and cheekbones. Her bike was found three months before she was in a marsh less than two miles north of the town where she was found murdered. It seemed to be in pretty good shape to have been in a marsh for two months, leading her parents to believe it was deliberately placed in the marsh at some point after she disappeared. Following the discovery of the bike, one of Ollie's shoes wrapped up in a black scarf and a men's sock tied together with what has been called a black woolen thread was found. Teeth marks on the bundle led investigators to believe this was a makeshift gag. The next day, in an area not too far away, Someone pulled a sharpened pine branch out of the ground and immediately smelled something very rotten. Ollie's body had been buried beneath the stick, which had pierced her decomposing body, one end lodging in her stomach and the other sticking out of the ground. Police were able to tell that the stick had been sharpened by someone who was left-handed. Investigators believe that Ollie's murderer had some kind of military knowledge, perhaps in engineering. Her grave was said to have been very skillfully constructed and her bike was placed somewhere purposefully to mislead authorities. Ollie was buried just a little over half a mile from where her bike had been found between June 1st and June 6th of 1953. While Ollie had been missing for just two weeks, this area had been informally searched and gone over due to people planting trees And there was nothing unusual, including the stick sticking out of the ground that had been found by searchers. Reportedly, Ollie seemed to be nervous or afraid of something leading up to her death. If someone was targeting her, this would seemingly not fit with the story that Hans told about a car accidentally hitting her. Like in the Lake Bodum camping murders, 
there were multiple suspects in Ollie's case. She had allegedly written to her priest, who used to be the vicar of her local parish, about religious problems, and he was later charged with having inappropriate sexual contact with a minor. A former police officer who had been fired from the force and was now a bar owner was a suspect. There was also a 38-year-old local ditch digger who had committed a sex crime in the 1940s and worked less than 200 feet from where Ollie's body was found buried. Local girls had called this man a peeping Tom. A 51-year-old local considered odd by residents and known to have mental health issues was also suspected. He died in a psychiatric facility in 1971. He lived only about a mile from where Ollie's body was found, and supposedly a shovel used to bury her was found at his work site. Police suspected him and his brother-in-law in Ollie's murder, but both men were dead by 1972. Runar Holmstrom, a suspect in the Lake Bodum murders, was also a suspect in a 1951 murder case that is eerily similar to the Lake Bodum murders and also has elements of Ollie's murder as well. Brunar claimed his innocence and took his own life by hanging himself in 1961, which was his third suicide attempt while in custody. On August 21st, 1951, 23-year-old Rita Aliki Pakinen and 21-year-old Ein Maria Nisonen were found dead in a swamp near a campsite. Ein was nude, but neither of the women had been assaulted sexually as far as authorities could tell. Rita had been hit in the head with something heavy. Her cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma. Ein had been stabbed. These two girls were buried less than 700 feet away from their campsite, with logs and branches placed over the grave so that the ground didn't appear freshly disturbed where they had been buried. Authorities also believe that the person who cut the branches that were used to cover it up was left-handed, just like whoever sharpened the pine branch at Ollie's burial site. Some of the women's personal items were missing and have never been found, just like some of the items, including the murder weapon from the Lake Bodum murders crime scene. The final suspect in Ollie's murder is Hans Asman. Hans Asman, in addition to being a suspect in Ollie's murder and in the Lake Bodum murders, is also suspect in these double murders. Witnesses recall two men speaking German who bought a map for the area just two days before the women were murdered. In 1997, Hans told an inspector while on his deathbed that he was in the car one night when the driver hit a young woman on a bicycle and they made her accidental death look like a murder. Hans had a cream-colored car and witnesses on the night of Ollie's disappearance claimed to have seen two men, including a blonde man in a cream-colored car with a bicycle in the trunk. Other witnesses saw a cream or beige-colored car driving away from the area Ollie was last seen in. Quickly, some reported that the car had no headlights on. Han's wife stated that he would have been driving in the area where Ollie went missing from due to his job and that when he came home following her disappearance, the car was damaged, his shoes were wet, and he was missing one sock. After a few days, Hans and the man who was driving that night left the house with a shovel. Fitting with the suspected military knowledge involved in digging Ollie's grave, we mentioned, Hans did serve in the military. In World War II, he supposedly served in the SS and was also a guard at the concentration camp, Auschwitz. Hans has been accused of being a KGB spy, which sounds ridiculous today, like something out of a movie. But due to Cold War relations in the late 1950s, Finland did have spies. There's a rich history about the political struggle for Finland during and after the Cold War. It's unknown if Hans Asman is even his real name, as he supposedly stole the identity of someone after the war, because he didn't want the backlash of having been associated with the Nazi party in Germany. Some believe that being a foreigner was the only crime that Hans committed, but that he enjoyed the infamy that the suspicion brought. For as many people who think he is shady and suspicious, there are just as many who believe that Hans was only an attention seeker. So more of that right there to me is very interesting because there are people like that who 
crave attention, even when that attention is very negative, right? Casting them potentially as having committed some very serious crimes. I don't get it. I don't think most people understand it, but it does happen. Yeah, I can think of several high-profile cases where that's happened, like in the JonBenet Ramsey case, the guy who was in uh, the Philippines for wherever he was that supposedly uh, claimed that he had a connection to her. And then in the Zodiac case, you have Arthur Lee Allen that sort of relished the attention of, of being a suspect. Yeah, I, I just don't understand why anyone would want to kind of relish in the infamy that comes with being connected with really nasty, heinous crimes. I, I just don't get it. You know, I, 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 that old saying, everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame. I get that. You know, if you get on a game show or you're on a reality show or whatever that is, but to be connected to murders. Okay. I think there's much better ways to figure out how to get your 15 minutes of fame. Penty Sonanen was also briefly a suspect in the Lake Bodum murders after he confessed to the murders as a teenager while he was already behind bars. Due to mental illness and substance abuse issues, his confessions were ruled false and police doubted his involvement with the Lake Bodum murders, though he was in jail for other unrelated violent crimes towards the end of the 1960s. In 1969, he took his own life, hanging himself while he was in custody. There is a photo online from the funeral for the Lake Bodum victims, and many describe it as chilling. It's a black and white photograph of the crowd, and one face is very clear. The man has very bulging, but at the same time, very sunken eyes and what appears to be a swollen jaw. You can't see any hair or ears. He's looking up and forward, while most of the crowd is looking down solemnly. Many people view this man as an eerily close match to the police sketches that were released in the media after the interviews done under hypnosis. Notably, the sketches have one side of the jaw larger than the other, just like the man in the crowd. This man was never identified and no one has ever come forward and claimed to know who he was. Many speculate that this is Hans Asman, but while some see similarities between Hans and this mystery man, others see mainly differences. Today, decades later, questions and theories about the Lake Bodum murders remain. Officials at one point thought that an angry and drunk teenage boy who was angered or rejected by his camping mates went into a rage, killing them and then pretending to be a victim himself. Others point to the kiosk man as being the more likely culprit. He hated campers. He was said to delight in cutting down the, their tents while they were still inside, and many believe he seems to fit the bill. We also have instances where two men, not just one, are seen. There are two men seen buying a map of a campsite where a double murder took place, and two men seen in a car around the time of Ollie's murder. Could there have been an evil murderous team roving around that area committing unspeakable crimes? To this day, some people are still wary. When they visit the Lake Bodum area, others take metal detectors up to the campsite area where the murders occurred, trying to find the knife used to commit the murders or the keys taken from the motorcycles, perhaps discarded by the killer over 60 years ago. Maybe if any of that stuff is found, it will somehow lead to the identity of the killer. Until that day arrives, the Lake Bodum murders remain one of Finland's most fascinating unsolved mysteries. And more if there's no doubt, this is a fascinating unsolved mystery. You know, as we wrap up this episode, we have a number of people that we talked about in this episode is being potential suspects. And, you know, like I said, you, you have what officials have said over the years, you have a lot of chatter on the internet about this case and people talking about various potential suspects. And, you know, one thing I want to go back to is, you know, a number of these suspects had 
alibi very early on in the investigation. And it seems as though, and we see this quite frequently many years later, it turns out that their alibi wasn't, you know, quite as solid as it was early on, or, you know, in the case of Hans Asman, it turns out that the alibi wasn't even real. It was false. His wife made it up. So I just, I always find that very fascinating. And I think it's true in a lot of cases, you know, relationships change over the years. People kind of fall out of love or they fall out of favor with friends. And so their willingness to help someone and maybe to give them an alibi, it changes as time goes on. And I always kind of believe that, you know, some cases could be solved that way. The problem I think becomes that once some of these things come out about the fact that maybe the alibis weren't as solid as previously thought or that they weren't real at all. So much time has gone by that it's very difficult to go back and reconstruct the investigation as if you knew that early on in the investigation. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I I think it shows that there's probably real challenges for police today trying to investigate a a 60-year-old cold case, you don't have any of these people to talk to. You can't go back and re-question them or try and, and get to the bottom of these alibis or lack of alibis and call them out for them not being correct because now they're they're dead. So these investigators today, are, I don't know where they go from here with this kind of case. Yeah, I think it's hard in, in any case where you're talking about 60-plus years later, you know, because even – if you could get to the point where you could put enough evidence together, you know, a lot of these people are dead now. So yeah, you could, you come out and make a statement that you believe you have enough evidence to say that this certain person committed the Lake Bodum murders. Yeah, possibly, but could you prove it in a court of law? I don't know how you could, I mean, at the very least, you couldn't convict the person because they've been deceased for many years. I think of something like uh, forensic genealogy in this case, could that solve it? But we don't know, again, how that evidence was collected, how it was handled, how it was preserved. And even if they somehow got a DNA profile, who knows if that belonged to a a random investigator or a random uh, Good Samaritan that was there helping with the search. We talked about how they uh, searched the area looking for clues, and there were footprints all over the place. So there's no telling who DNA would belong to, even if they found it all these years later. Yeah, I, I often think about you know these types of cases where you're out in the woods, or you know you're in a a touristy type setting, a national park. Uh, uh, someplace like that, how different are these cases from, let's say, a case where you know someone is murdered inside a three-bedroom home? Okay, well, there's only a certain number of people that should have been in that three-bedroom home, let's say, over a given period of time. It could be a, quite a number of people, but it's possible to try to narrow it down. How do you narrow down who's been camping in an area like this over a certain period of time? It becomes very difficult. I also wonder what the motive actually was in this case. You know, There were some things that were taken from the campers, but there were things that weren't taken. And both the motorcycles were there. This person could have driven off on a motorcycle and perhaps sold one of them to make money, but he didn't do that. So... I wonder if, if the taking of possessions was an afterthought or maybe there were some kind of trophies and the true motive for the attack was simply to kill people, which is, is really frightening. Yeah, it is. And, and I kind of lean towards that as well. In my mind, this seems to be the case of more of a thrill kill. 
I'll call it, right? The person set out to kill as opposed to, you know, a crime of passion, revenge, something like that. I'm kind of looking at this as a potential thrill kill, but I could be completely wrong. I mean, that's, that's the thing about these types of cases. Everyone has their take on it and we kind of all get to play amateur detective with the clues that are known. I think a case like this after 60 years, the fact that people are still where to go out in that area and still talk about it and think about it, it just shows you how frightening something like this is because the killer obviously isn't alive out there, but it's it's stuck with the residents there and they're they're aware of it. And I think it sort of translates to any place. When you go out in the woods camping, you never know who's out there. So I think anyone that camps maybe has had that little bit of a feeling of who might be out here with me. Yeah. I've had that feeling before kind of an, an, I'll call it an uneasy type feeling. Now this case being as infamous as it is in Finland, I get it. Why people are still a little leery. They've heard about it. They've there have probably been stories told around campfires for, you know, 60 plus years about this story. It's a very big case there. I kind of liken it to, you know, Camp Crystal Lake. You know, if you ask me more to go camping with you at Camp Crystal Lake, I'm going to say no. You know, I've seen the movies. I've seen Jason. It scared me. I'm not going with you. And I think it shows how, how some of these places get a reputation that's a, a lasting one for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, definitely. No doubt. Thanks goes out to Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As always, if you love the show, but haven't done so yet, take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating. Keep telling your friends about the Criminology Podcast. That word of mouth goes a long way. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at Criminology Pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast or by joining our Facebook discussion group, Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. So more if that is it for our episode on the Lake Bodum murders, but we'll be back with everyone next Saturday night with an all new episode of criminology. So until then for Mike and Morph, we'll talk to you next week. Take care everyone.